All right, well, it's two o'clock, so we should go ahead and get started so we can get through everything. So I'm gonna have a word of prayer and then we'll get into our presentation. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you for this weekend conference talking about our ultimate purpose. And I thank you that we can spend this afternoon studying the sanctuary message. Be with me as I speak and be with each one of us as we listen. May you impress upon our hearts and minds the truths that we need to know and understand for our time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, my name is Norman McNulty, and I live about three hours west of here in a town called Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. And I graduated from Southern Adventist University in the year 2000, so I graduated 12 years ago. So I'm coming back to my alma mater. And when I was a student, I remember coming to meetings like this in the afternoon. So it's kind of neat to come back and um, experience it from the other side, if you will. And I'm excited about this afternoon's presentation. We're going to be doing the sanctuary. And unfortunately, the titles didn't get into the program. But let me tell you what our titles are. First of all, the theme for the, this afternoon is the purpose of the sanctuary. And so the overall theme, we're going to find how there is purpose for our lives as Seventh-day Adventists in the sanctuary message. If you want to know what your ultimate purpose is, be a Seventh-day Adventist and understand the sanctuary message. That's, that's our ultimate purpose. And then, so what we're going to do in the first presentation, the title for that is The Sanctuary Message and Adventism. We're going to see how the sanctuary message is, in essence, Adventism. And so we're going to look at that. In our second presentation, and I suspect some of you will want to be here for the second one, we are going to go through the Desmond Ford controversy. The title is The Sanctuary Message and the Desmond Ford Attack. Have you all heard of Desmond Ford? Okay, some of you may not have, but he laid a very vicious attack against our sanctuary doctrine, and we're going to see what he said and what the Bible really says. And then in the last presentation, the title is The Sanctuary Message in the Last Generation. What we're going to do is we're going to look in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to see the theme of the sanctuary message in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to connect what Jesus has done and is doing and how that connects to God's people living in the last generation of Earth's history. So that's where we are headed. So let's go ahead and get into our presentation for our first part this afternoon. And I'm going to start off by reading a few quotes from Ellen White, from the Spirit of Prophecy, to help us to understand just how important the sanctuary message is. And this first quote is found in early writings page 63. I think this is a familiar quote, but this will set the stage for everything else we're going to talk about. Early Writings, page 63. Ellen White says, There are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. Amen? Amen. We need present truth. 
And then she goes on to say, I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause. So, so far she said we need present truth and Satan wants our messengers to talk about anything but present truth. So we want to know what present truth is, right? What is present truth? Ellen White says, but such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is, establish the faith of the doubting, and give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. So Ellen White says she frequently saw from God that we should dwell on the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And the question is, why are we as a church not talking about these messages very often? It's because Satan is trying to distract the messengers from giving the message. He knows that the sanctuary message in connection with the 2300 days, and by the way, not the 2520, the sanctuary message in connection with the 2300 days is perfectly united or calculated to unite our flock and to explain our message. So the first point I'm going to put up here on the board, why are we talking about the sanctuary? Well, number one, because it is present truth. And we are told that we should frequently focus on this message. So that's our first quote. Okay, I have another quote here. So the first quote that we've seen is that the sanctuary message is present truth for our time, amen? So if it's present truth for our time, we should be studying it, right? Okay, let's look at another quote. This comes from Life Sketches, page 278. It's also found in Review and Herald, November 27, 1883. And here Ellen White says, In his word, God has revealed saving truths. As a people, we should be earnest students of prophecy. Can I hear an amen for that? We should be earnest students of prophecy. You know, the last thing we need are lazy Adventists. So here we see that we should be earnest students of prophecy. Where are the earnest students of prophecy in our church? I know there's some, but there should be way more than what we have. All right. As a people, we should be earnest students of prophecy. We should not rest until we become intelligent in regard to the subject of the sanctuary. So Ellen White says we should not rest. We should be earnest students of prophecy. And we should not rest until we become intelligent in regard to the subject of the sanctuary. I mean... The sanctuary message, it's present truth, 
and it's something that we need to be intelligent about. And then she goes on to say, which is brought out in the visions of Daniel and John. This subject sheds great light on our present position and work and gives us unmistakable proof that God has led in our past experience. It explains our disappointment in 1844, showing us that the sanctuary to be cleansed was not the earth as we had supposed, but that Christ then entered into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and is there performing the closing work of his priestly office in fulfillment of the words of the angel to the prophet Daniel unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And I might say, and we're going to talk about Daniel 8.14, we're going to get into that. But Daniel 8.14 is the verse in Scripture that set the Advent movement in motion. That verse, the sanctuary being cleansed, that is what set our movement in motion. Now, I love this next paragraph in this quote. And so she's going on talking about the sanctuary. She says, our faith in reference to the messages of the first, second, and third angels was correct. So she connects the three angels' messages to the sanctuary. The great way marks we have passed are immovable. And notice this, although the hosts of hell may try to tear them from their foundation and triumph in the thought that they have succeeded, yet they do not succeed. These pillars of truth stand firm as the eternal hills, unmoved by all the efforts of men combined with those of Satan and his host. Did you hear that? Ellen White is saying that you can have all of hell coming against the three angels' messages, coming against the sanctuary message, and no matter what, this truth stands firm. So point number two, and we'll move over to this board. Number one, we see that the sanctuary is present truth. And number two, we see that it is an eternal pillar of truth. So based on these two quotes already, you got to see that what we're studying is absolutely essential. It's a crucial doctrine that we as Seventh-day Adventists need to understand. Now, an, another familiar quote, Great Controversy, pages 488, 489. All who have received the light upon these subjects are to bear testimony of the great truths which God has committed to them. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. It concerns every soul living upon the earth. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is of the utmost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects and be able to give an answer to everyone that asketh them, a reason of the hope that is in them. So of how much importance? Utmost importance. And then she says, this is the key point, the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Okay, so what do we have now? The sanctuary is as essential yeah, as the cross. So it's as essential to the plan of salvation as the cross. 
So what do we have? We have a present truth message that our messengers should frequently dwell upon. It's an eternal pillar of truth that all the hosts of Satan and hell may try to knock against it. It stands true, and it's as essential to the plan of salvation as the cross. And then one last quote, and then we're going to start getting into some, some of the nuts and bolts, so to speak, of our sanctuary doctrine. This is from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. The great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work of these last days should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. So here's a key point. The sanctuary message is supposed to make a strong impression upon us. The sanctuary message is not supposed to just be some boring doctrine where you spend, and, I, and I'll say this, I've been to some Bible studies where they study the sanctuary and you spend two hours reading verses from the Old Testament and they're important, but all you're focusing on are goats and bulls and this and that, and Jesus is lost sight of. But what I hope we're going to get out of the seminar today is that you're going to see Jesus at the heart of the sanctuary message, and it's going to make such an impression upon you that you will be able to impress others with how you have been impressed. So let me read that again. The great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work of these last days should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make such an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. Now notice this. All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement which is going on in the sanctuary above. And notice this. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the day of God and their efforts will be successful now that's that's powerful you know we wonder like where why do we not have the power why are we still here 168 years after 1844 where's the power in our message how come Jesus hasn't come back well there's a number of issues going on and that we're going to talk about throughout our three hours. But one of the things that we see is that the sanctuary message is supposed to impress our hearts and minds so much about what Jesus is doing in heaven above that we will get excited about the Adventist message. We will go out and it will impress other people. Wow, these Seventh-day Adventists, they have a substance to their message about Jesus that I've never heard before. And when we go out and do that, we will prepare prepare a people to stand in the day of God when Jesus comes, and our efforts will have been successful, and we will have worked in harmony with God. So what we see with the sanctuary message is that it's to prepare a people to stand when Jesus comes at the second coming. So those are just four simple quotes that many of you have probably heard before, but the very first one, Early Writings, page 63, that's the message that the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days is present truth and that we should frequently dwell upon it as messengers. So that's what we're doing today. Yes. Oh, this was, the last quote was Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. And then the second, or the first one, okay, I'll, I'm, I'm going to give you the quotes now. We'll go through them one by one. The first one, Early Writings, page 63. 
that's the present truth message. And then the second one where, we, where she says that, um, that these pillars of truth stand firm as the eternal hills, that we need to um, have a more intelligent understanding of this doctrine. This is found in Life Sketches, page 278. And then the quote where she says, the, the sanctuary or the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. That's great controversy, page 489. And realize there are a whole bunch of other quotes in the spirit of prophecy, but I, those are the ones that I chose to give emphasis to at the start of our presentation. Thank you very much. So, Let's continue on here. Now, I, I hope you see, based on those four quotes, can you see on the basis of those four quotes that the sanctuary message is important? And you know, again, we as Seventh-day Adventists, we should understand this doctrine much better. And this teaching, it's not just one of the points, 28 fundamental beliefs, whatever. From the basis of these quotes, this is something that we need to be talking about all the time. This is something that we need to be intelligent about. And because it's as essential to the plan of salvation as what Jesus did on the cross. And when we understand it correctly and when we share it with others, it will prepare people to be ready when Jesus comes back. So this is crucial. So what is the sanctuary message for Adventism? Let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, 14. And this is, of course, we, we already quoted it in passing, but let's get out our, our Bibles and let's look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And the famous verse, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And so I'm going to go ahead and diagram this out on the board because I think a visual representation is helpful to understand. So we have 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Okay, so what are the dates for the 2,300-day prophecy? Just someone can call them out. When does it start? When does it end? Okay, 457 AD or BC? Okay, there we go. So 457 B.C. Now, let me ask you this. What historical evidence do we have to prove that the 2300 days begins in 457 B.C.? Okay. It was and who gave the decree? Artaxerxes. So it's the decree of Artaxerxes. And what year of Artaxerxes' reign did this happen? Do you know when Artaxerxes gave the decree? Which year? It, well, I'll tell you. It was in the seventh year of his reign. And do you know how we know what year in history the seventh year of Artaxerxes' reign was? Yeah, this is good. I, I'm teaching new information. I like that. It's in the canon of Ptolemy. The canon of Ptolemy, that is how we know historically that the seventh year of Artaxerxes, which was the year that he gave the decree to restore and build Jerusalem and the temple and all of that, 
The canon of Ptolemy says that the seventh year of Artaxerxes was 457 BC. So, and, and, and we'll go to Daniel 9 to see how we connect that. So that's the starting point, and then the ending point is when? 1844, and what day? Day of Atonement, And when was the Day of Atonement in 1844? Okay, so I'm pretty, you know, talking to Seventh-day Adventists, I, I assume most Seventh-day Adventists know October 22, 1844. Now, how do you explain that the Day of Atonement was October 22. How did the Millerites come to the date of October 22? Did they, did they just pick it out of thin air? No, they, there was a method to it. And let me explain it briefly. Um, uh, because initially, William Miller said that he thought that Jesus would come between um, the spring of 1843 and the spring of 1844, and he didn't pick a date, and he figured that that got him around the no one knows the day or the hour issue. But then the spring of 1844 came and went, and Jesus didn't come, and that was the early disappointment. And so the Millerites went back and studied this further, and it was specifically a Millerite by the name of Samuel S. Snow. Anyone ever heard of Samuel Snow? Okay. And his... his um, explanation is, is right on the money, and of course it has the endorsement of inspiration from Ellen White that October 22 is the correct date. How did they arrive at the date? Well, they looked at the Jewish festivals. There were the spring festivals, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and 50 days later, Pentecost. And they looked at those principles and they said, you know what, when Jesus came, type met anti-type on the very day. For example, Jesus as the Passover lamb died on Passover Friday. And he was our, he was, his body was broken as the unleavened bread on the Sabbath day. He was the offering of first fruits on the morning of his resurrection. And 50 days later, the early rain was poured out on the very day of Pentecost. And so they looked at that and they said, if type met anti-type in the spring festivals when Jesus came, then type should meet anti-type at the end of the 2300 days. Because if it was on the very day in the spring festivals, it should be on the very day in the fall festivals. And you have the Feast of Trumpets that would start 10 days before the Day of Atonement and about 10 years before 1844, the second Advent message started going out. So everything lined up perfectly and that's how they came to October 22, 1844. Now, Samuel Snow gave this message around August 12 of 1844 at a camp meeting. And does anyone remember what happened as a result of Samuel Snow giving the message, setting the date for October 22? What do we call that? It was the midnight cry, the seventh month movement. So Samuel Snow comes in, he comes to a camp meeting, Joseph Bates is giving, unfortunately, a, a boring sermon because nobody knew what was happening at that point, and Samuel Snow comes in somewhat dramatically, sits down on the front row, tells his sister, I have new light. She, she stands up and says, Brother Bates, my brother here has new light, why don't you come down and let him speak? I hope no one does that to me today, but anyway. <laughs> and, um, and so he comes up, he sets the date, 
and it was so powerful. People weren't like jumping up and dancing or screaming. It was this silent, solemn, settled conviction that Jesus was coming in two months and 10 days. And they had him repeat the message the next morning. And as history says, that movement swept the Advent movement like a tornado. And it was called the seventh month movement because it was the 10th day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. And the, the word on everyone's lips, starting in August of 1844, was, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And so that's how October 22 was set. Now, and that was the midnight cry. Now, let me say something about this. You realize Ellen White has something very significant to say about the midnight cry in her very first vision. This is found in early writings, and I believe it is in page, starting in page 13, and it goes into page 14. And let me make sure I get the right spot here. Yes, here it is. It's actually page 14. While I was praying at the family altar, the Holy Ghost fell upon me, and I seemed to be rising higher and higher, far above the dark world. I turned to look for the Advent people in the world, but could not find them, when a voice said to me, Look again and look a little higher. At this I raised my eyes and saw a straight and narrow path cast up high above the earth. How many of you have heard of this vision before? So it's the vision, you know, the straight and narrow on the way to heaven. And so Ellen White has looked a little higher. She sees the people and she says, On this path, the Advent people were traveling to the city, which was at the farther end of the path. Now notice this. They had a bright light set up behind them at the beginning of the path, which an angel told me was the midnight cry. And she says, This light shone all along the path and gave light for their feet so that they might not stumble. So if I may, here's the pathway from earth to heaven and the light that's shining, and I'm not an artist, but anyway, you get the idea. You have streaks of light coming all the way up this pathway. The light that shines, and it's a bright light that shines at the beginning of the pathway all the way to the kingdom is the light of the midnight cry. And Jesus is up, you know, at this end of the path. Now, the question is, why is the light of the midnight cry, which was the experience of the Advent believers from August to October of 1844, which led them right up to the great disappointment, why is that the light at the beginning of the pathway of the Advent believers, which we, hopefully, are on that path, amen? So here's the first point. If you do not see light in 1844, according to inspiration, you're not even on the path. Do you see the significance of that? If you do not see light in 1844, and 1844 is all about the cleansing of the sanctuary, if you do not see light, in the sanctuary message, in the 1844 experience of the early Advent believers, you're not even on the pathway that's shining to heaven. And we're going to talk about in our next hour the whole Desmond Ford apostasy and what came out of that and how it got attacked. And scores and scores and scores of Adventists fell off the pathway at that point. They had been on the path 
and then they got confused, they disregarded the light, they fell off. What about that light? Well, the midnight cry is a type, so to speak, in small measure of what the loud cry is going to be like at the end of time. And if God's people expect to be filled with the latter rain and to go out and give the loud cry of the third angel and the earth is going to be lightened with the glory of the message that we are going to give to Babylon and we're going to tell people to come out of Babylon, we need to understand the experience of the people who went through the midnight cry movement. In fact, Ellen White says in Great Controversy, page 401, and I, I... I'll just make sure that I get this quote correctly. She says, Of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection and the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. And that's August to October. So if we want to be part of that last movement, we have a lot to learn from the spirit of the Millerites who studied their Bible so carefully that they actually came to the exact day of the 2300-day prophecy reaching its fulfillment. Okay, so let's look a little bit more into this message. And by the way, when I see that, that gets me pretty excited about our message. I mean, we have a message that the light from 1844 shines all the way to heaven, and that's really just the beginning point of our movement. There's a lot more to it. This understanding of the sanctuary comes out. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit more. Now, first of all, you know, we talked about the dates 457 B.C. and the, how the canon of Ptolemy identifies that as the seventh year of Artaxerxes, where the decree went out to start this prophecy. But Daniel chapter 9 helps us to understand the starting point, right? So Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, he didn't understand the vision in chapter 8, so he's praying, he's asking for understanding, he's repenting for the sins, the wickedness of his people, and Gabriel shows up to him, or shows up, in verse 23, says, At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Well, Daniel... He's told to consider the vision. What vision is that? It's the vision he had in Daniel chapter 8. Now, here's an interesting point. Do you know that there are two words for vision in Daniel chapter 8? How many of you know that there's two, two words for vision in chapter 8? There's hazon and Marae. How many of you knew that? Okay, if you don't, that's fine. We're here to learn, right? This is a sanctuary seminar. But in Daniel chapter 8, there, there's the word vision... And there's the word Marae and Hazon. Now, there's a difference in the meaning of these two words. The, the Marae is based on what Daniel hears, and the Hazon is based on what he sees. Because in verses 3 through 12, he sees a ram, then he sees a he-goat, and then he sees a little horn. The ram waxes great, the he-goat waxes very great, and the little horn waxes exceeding great. That's verses 3 through 12. That's the hazon. That is what he sees. Then in verses 13 and 14, he hears one saint speaking unto another saint. And the theological term for that is an audition. That's what you hear. It's auditory. And the marae 
is used in Daniel chapter 8 to describe what he heard. The Hazon is based on what he saw. In Daniel chapter 9, when Gabriel says, I am come, I, I, he says, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision, guess which word he uses? He uses Marae. Why is that significant? Because Marae describes the part of the vision in Daniel 8 where Daniel heard unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. We have William Shea to thank for that. He was the one who discovered that. And that has given even further evidence of how Daniel 8 and Daniel chapter 9 are connected. Up until that time, we were like, well, yeah, obviously the vision of Daniel chapter 8 is what... Gabriel's referring to in chapter 9, but then when we saw, hey, there's two different words for vision, and specifically when Gabriel tells Daniel to consider the vision, he's saying, consider what you heard in that vision, specifically the 2300 days. So then, that's where you see, right at that point, verse 24, what's the very first thing that Gabriel tells Daniel? Because Daniel, he's praying about the time of the prophecy. He's reminding God, you said 70 years of captivity in Babylon. God, what, what are you talking about with 2,300 years? I'm not getting this. The very first thing Gabriel tells Daniel is 70 weeks are determined upon your people. And what does the word determined mean in verse 24? Yeah, it's the Hebrew word katak, which means to cut or cut off. So you have 70 weeks are cut off. It's the starting point, and they're cut off. And I'm going to make some space here now. Seventy weeks are cut off, and that's not really to scale. Let me do a better job here. Okay. So these are the 490 years. 70 times 7 is 490, which is why Jesus told Peter, forgive your brother 70 times 7. But anyway, because he forgave the Jewish nation 70 times 7. That's just a side point. But anyway, okay. 70 weeks are cut off or determined upon your people for four specific things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Those were the four things that God was hoping the Jewish nation would see accomplished in that 70-week probationary time period. Make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision, anoint the most holy, finish the transgression, make an end of sin. That was what was supposed to happen. And if it didn't, it would all get pushed off to the end of the 2300 days, which is what God is now trying to do with his Advent people. And then notice this in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So there you have the, the, the command to restore. We saw that the canon of Ptolemy places that commandment in 457 BC. And this is very interesting here. So you have the 490-year prophecy, but even in that 490-year prophecy, you have the last part here, the last week, which is seven years. And we'll just, I'll, I'll make it larger so you can see. You have seven weeks at the end, and that takes you to 34 AD. And so the, you see how it's broken up, how you have under Messiah the Prince, you have 69 weeks. So that's 27 AD. 
and at the end is 34 AD. And then you, and I'm going to, for the sake of time, we'll skip along here. You see that at the, in the midst of the week, the Messiah was cut off. That's 31 AD, and you have the cross right here. Notice what the 2300-day prophecy in connection with the 70-week prophecy does for us, and this is, to me, very powerful. A lot of times we study the dates and the numbers, and we've done that to make a point because maybe this is the first time some of you have studied this, just so that you can see, yes, 457 B.C. to 1844, and under Messiah the Prince, there were 69 weeks. He starts his ministry in the fall of 27. He's crucified in the spring of 31. Stephen is stoned in 34 A.D., and that's your 70 weeks. But notice what we have here. In the 2300 days and the 70 weeks, you have something very crucial. Messiah the Prince and his death is in the 490-year prophecy. And Messiah the High Priest, he's now in the most holy place after 1844. So the 2300-day prophecy is really a Messiah-centric prophecy. It points out the plan of salvation that would take place in 31 AD. And it points out the second phase of salvation that takes place starting in 1844. Christ makes the sacrifice in 31 AD. He ascends to heaven, and in 1844, he goes into the most holy place to finish dealing with the sin problem for the final time. So what you have with the 2300-day prophecy, you have the Messiah on earth, and the Messiah in heaven. So the 70 weeks gives you the Messiah on earth, and the 2300 days places the Messiah in heaven. And we're going to study in the last presentation exactly what he's doing in the heavenly sanctuary from the book of Hebrews. But what I'm trying to do with the 2300-day prophecy here is to show you that Christ is at the center of this prophecy. We're not just studying dates to say, oh, okay, now I know when the 2300 days started. Now I know when they end. Okay, that's good. Well, what's the point? The point is that we have a frame of reference to know when Jesus came to this earth to die for our sins and to make sure that the plan of salvation would be accomplished. And we see that happen in the 70-week prophecy. And not only that, because he died on the cross, he could then be resurrected, ascend to heaven, and at the end of the 2300 days, go into the most holy place so that he could start the work of what we call the final atonement. Has anyone ever heard of the term the final atonement? Okay. The final atonement is what the high priest did once a year in the earthly service where he would go in and blot out the sins of God's people. And that's the work that started in 1844. I haven't set it up until this point, but the obvious point is this. We're 168 years now past Jesus going into the most holy place. That's why Ellen White says in early writings, page 63, the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days is present truth for our time. And, it's what, and she was shown by the Lord, she says, I was frequently shown that this is what the messenger should be talking about. 
And then she says she saw that the devil would try to distract the messengers to run off and talk about, you name it. You, you know, you talk about coming to church and you hear pe people talking about our felt needs and grace this and happiness that and this that and whatever. And all of those might be precious truths contained in the word of God. And some of it is just outright error that we're hearing. But where is the message for our time? Why are we not hearing this in our pulpits? Because this is the message for our time, and we're going to specifically see what Christ is doing for us that makes it so crucial. We see that Jesus came right on time. He died on the cross right on time. He showed up right on time, went into the most holy place, and he's been sitting there in the most holy place for 168 years now, waiting to finish off the final atonement. And we're going to spend the remaining time talking about how he's going to do that. Now, in the last few minutes of this hour, let me keep moving here. What I'm going to do now is make a diagram of the sanctuary. And we're going to see how prophecy shows that the model of the sanctuary, which is based on the model in heaven, how that has been fulfilled prophetically. So this is the, the veil, or the, the curtain that goes all the way around the courtyard. And then inside you have the actual sanctuary itself. And then you have the outer courtyard with the, uh, should have made a square there. This is the, the altar of burnt offering, and you have the laver, and then here you have the two apartments, the holy place, the most holy place. You have the table of showbread. You have the altar of incense, and you have the seven golden candlesticks. And then in the most holy place you have the Ark of the Covenant. Those are just, that's a basic drawing. Let's look now at what the book of Revelation says about the sanctuary message. First of all, when we go to the book of Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to go through this very quickly for the sake of time. Revelation chapter 1 and verse... 13, speaking of Jesus, or actually verse 12, he says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we see Jesus was in the holy place. And then when you go to Revelation chapter 4, in verse 5, verse 4 talks about 24 elders seated um, before the throne. And in verse 5 it says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, now what do we see here in Revelation 4 verse 5? Revelation 4 verse 5, where are we still at? You see this, you have, you have seven lamps of fire, right? 
So here's the, the, the candlesticks, and the, this is before or in front of the throne, which is what in the Old Testament sanctuary? Yeah, it's the table of, yeah, it's the table of showbread. I have a question. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And you said, how can you prove that this word before refers to before in the sense of before the, the seven, the seven uh, candlesticks is kind of also before the ark? Okay. No, no, it means in front of. And so, yeah, that's what it means in the Greek. So, so, so this. No, what what it, what what it would mean is that it's it's in front of or across from. That's what the word means. So you're in the apartment because there's a veil here, so you can't see into the other apartments theoretically. So you're right here and you're looking straight in to the seven lamps, and this is the throne. And here's the point about this, and I don't want to spend much time on this because we have a few key points to get to still. But you, the table of showbread, you have two stacks of six loaves of bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He also says, I and my Father are one. So the throne of God, when Jesus went to heaven initially, was the table of showbread, so to speak, because the Father and Son were next to each other. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So one of the things that the table of showbread teaches us is that the Father and the Son are equal, just as this two stacks, stacks of six loaves of bread were equal. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So that's the throne in Revelation chapter 4. No, it just means that, that God the Father and God the Son are the ones seated in judgment. And then in Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 2, it says, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden center, censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. This represents Jesus as our high priest interceding on our behalf. And here we find him at the altar of incense at the beginning of the seven trumpets. And it's only until we come to Revelation chapter 11, which is when the seventh trumpet sounds, starting in verse 15, Revelation 11:15, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. When you come to verse 19, it says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple, what? The Ark of His Testament. Now, if you understand the trumpets, the sixth trumpet ends August 11, 1840. So when the seventh trumpet sounds, and verse 14 says that it would sound shortly after the end of the sixth, it only makes sense that we'd be talking about 1844 here. So you have the trumpets get you to the altar of incense, and when you get to the seventh trumpet, though, you come into the most holy place where you have the Ark of His Testament. Now let me show you another verse. <clears throat> At the beginning of Revelation chapter 11, notice this. Verse 1. And there was given me a, a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure what? The temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, for, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So during the 1260-year prophecy, which is 538 to 1798, the outer courtyard here, it says, that's done. 
Jesus died on the cross, 31 AD. He shed his blood. He now takes that blood into the holy place. And then Revelation 11:19 says in 1844, the temple of God was open in heaven, and now Jesus goes to the most holy place. So even in the book of Revelation, you see the, the sequence. It says, after the cross, when you get into the dark ages, the outer court, that part, of the sanctuary is done. Jesus has completed his work on the cross, but he's not done with his work. He is now among the candlesticks. He was seated across from the candlesticks. He's at the altar of incense, interceding on behalf of the saints, and then we see he's in the most holy place, starting in Revelation eleven nineteen. Now here is the point that I will make as we end this first hour. When the seventh trumpet sounds, all of the trumpets are announcing a judgment. The first four trumpets are a judgment on Western Rome. And this isn't a prophecy seminar, but the first four trumpets are a judgment on Western Rome. The fifth and sixth trumpets are a judgment on Eastern Rome. They end in August 11, 1840. And the seventh trumpet is a judgment on spiritual Rome. And that judgment... When the seventh trumpet sounds, the temple of God is open in heaven. That's 1844, synonymous with the cleansing of the sanctuary. And is there anywhere in the book of Revelation that announces the beginning of the judgment in heaven? Absolutely. The three angels' messages, Revelation 14, 6 through 12. So when Jesus goes into the most holy place, this is synonymous with the work of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Revelation 14, starting in verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his what? His judgment is come. So judgment begins with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and that correlates with the sanctuary being cleansed, which is how Daniel 7 and 8 correlate as well. But we don't have time to talk about that. And then the second angel's message, Babylon has fallen. The third angel's message, you have the mark of the beast. You, and then you have it concluding with the patience of the saints, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. So the three angels' messages, and, and let me just say this. The three angels' messages, it starts with what? It starts with the everlasting gospel. You realize the gospel has never changed? People try to say that we have a New Testament gospel of grace, yet Abraham is the father of faith, and he was pretty far back in the Old Testament. Don't tell me that the gospel has changed and that the gospel that saved Abraham is a different gospel than saves us. Because Paul uses Abraham as an illustration of saving faith in Romans chapter 4. The everlasting gospel is the same gospel that Jesus came, he died to save us from our sins, not in our sins. We receive forgiveness and we receive power to overcome. That's the everlasting gospel. And so the everlasting gospel then is at the heart of our sanctuary message. It's at the heart of the three angels messages. And it's at the heart of the announcement that the judgment hour message in heaven has begun. And it's important to announce that the judgment hour message has begun because Babylon has fallen. And if you stay in Babylon, you will receive the mark of the beast. And if you receive the mark of the beast, you will receive the outpouring of the seven last plagues, which is a culmination of the seven seventh trumpet, because the seventh trumpet is the final judgment, and the, the judgment culminates with the plagues being poured out upon the
on the wicked. And so the three angels' messages are designed by God to save his people from receiving the plagues. It's a message of mercy, it's a message of grace, and it's a message that we should not be ashamed of. We should not be afraid to identify who Babylon is because what's really loving? Telling people, hey, you're in the place that if you stay there, you're gonna get the plagues or if you come out, you'll have eternal salvation. Yet somehow our mentality in this postmodern era of thinking is don't say anything to offend anyone else's belief or faith. Yet if we choose not to say anything to them, they're going to stay lost. And what are we going to say in the judgment? Oh, we don't want to hurt your feelings? No. Yet, it's a message of mercy, of love, and of grace. And again, look at this. It's the three angels' messages. Everlasting gospel, judgment, our message, Babylon has fallen. And the third angel's messages culminate with verse 12 of Revelation 14. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, do you remember that quote we read at the beginning of our presentation, Ellen White said this, early writing 63, there are many precious truths contained in the word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. And then she talks about how there's a danger from running off from present truth, and then she says this is what present truth is. The sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. That's the third angel's message. That's perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement, show what our present position is, establish the faith of the doubting, and give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messenger should dwell. What's my burden? My burden is to see more Seventh-day Adventists giving the message that the Lord has told us we should frequently dwell upon. Why are we not talking about the messages that God has told us to dwell upon? You even go to good meetings with good speakers and they'll just talk about basic elements of Christianity where when, and we're gonna talk about this in our last presentation, where Paul says, get past the milk of the word, get onto the strong meat so that we can prepare people to stand in the day of God. It's way past time to be dwelling on the milk of the word. We as God's people, we know way too much or should know way more than we do to be dwelling upon on milk. We need to get to the meat of the word. So with that, um, you had a question? So, right, so my burden is, no, I, and I hear you, so my burden is to get people interested in the sanctuary message so that you won't just come away saying, man, that was a really nice presentation, Norman. Thank you for sharing that. No, go back home if you haven't studied this and study it so that you can start giving studies on this yourself. This isn't just for a few people to be talking about. And look, I'm not a pastor, so if I'm not a pastor, uh, I'm a physician, but I mean, anybody can go out there and do this. The Lord used William Miller, who was a farmer, to, to develop some of these ideas. So he can use anybody if you're willing to let, let him use you. So let's wrap up here. We'll take a five minute break. And then the next presentation, I'll have a closing prayer. Just for those of you who came in late, the next hour we are going to spend talking about the history of Desmond Ford. We're going to read an eyewitness account of someone who was there when he gave his initial presentation. We're going to see the key points that he made to attack the sanctuary doctrine. And then we're going to use the Bible to show that he didn't know what he was talking about. So let's have a, a closing prayer now. Father in heaven, thank you so much for allowing us to study present truth of the sanctuary doctrine. And I pray that you would raise up people in our church who will give this message with force and power that shows 
what Jesus is doing in heaven now. And I pray that Jesus would come soon and that we would be ready to meet him and be with us through the remaining presentations. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.